Um, let's get started tonight with what is ultimately our 17th lesson in our studies in Ephesians, and this is a, um, the first time in a few weeks. Um, of course, we have taken the last couple off, and I'm, I'm going to share with the online audience through this lesson. Um, I'm intentionally kind of saving a lot of the stuff that we saw in Israel and some of the impactful things that I've been processing. I saved it for the lesson, and I saved it for for the group, both in this room and out of this room, so everybody could kind of hear it at the same time. But it was not coincidental to, to me that this lesson, I, I titled this lesson One. It's not coincidental that we arrive in Ephesians 4, where tonight we're going to read the text about us all being one. And um, what does that mean? And that not just one as in we all think alike. In fact, that's not it at all. Not one in that we all worship alike. That's not it at all. Dress alike, read the same translation of Bible. Kind of all the superficial stuff we kind of think that, or at least I did, for a long time thought that if we could ever just be in Christ as one, then a lot of this stuff would look similar. And I, I think that's actually the opposite is true. I don't think they will look similar at all, but there will be something quite similar um, in the oneness of who we are in Christ. So in this, we're going to read a little bit up front. And then we're going to pause and I'm going to talk to you about some things that we saw, that we experienced, that were impactful to me uh, personally, that were impactful to me spiritually, um, and also a testimony or two thrown in of some things that were not, also were not coincidental, that were ordained of the Spirit, if I've ever had anything ordained of the Spirit. And so um, we'll get to those, but let's start not in Ephesians. Let's start with Jesus and John. This is something that we did a long time ago in our John series. I'm not going to belabor it, but John chapter 17, verses 20 to 23, I go into the Jesus prayer. Remember, when Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, then he prays for all of us. This is the all of us segment. And in it, we see this word one pop up over and over again. So I want to let Jesus be our definition of one. And then we'll let Paul build off of that definition. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so this includes us. This is not just Peter, James, and John that I'm praying for. I'm praying for everyone impacted by Peter, James, and John. You're going to throw that gospel rock into the pond, and those ripples are going to go out across Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. Or really, they're going to go across time. They're going to cross centuries, and they're going to meet us. They met you at an altar. They met you in a Sunday morning go-to-meeting. They met you in a revival, whatever. They, and they met you because someone cast the gospel your way. That was being cast over and over and over again. Okay, so all of those castings of the gospel are in this prayer. I don't pray for just these. I pray for all of those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us. And here's what he wants to see. That they all may be one. All of them across time. How's that even possible? How's it even possible that all across time, all across the centuries, all across language, all across race, all across geography, that they could all be one? Well, it's not possible that we're, that we're all one. We don't even live at the same time. And so Jesus is throwing a very broad net here of what one is. And so you can get rid of all your other definitions of sameness or likeness and broaden it that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. 22. 
and the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one. And as far as I'm concerned, this is it. That they may be one as we are one. And Jesus is both divine and human. Not partially, not 50-50. Like, he's, he's this and he's this smashed together. And they're almost at this cosmic war. Because that's how you can preach it. And I think we teach, teach and preach it wrong. That Jesus is fighting against his flesh at times. He's fully human and fully God integrated at the same time so that he never surrenders his divinity, but he does surrender grasping it as his only identity. Remember what Paul says. Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's, a, that's old King James. It's a terrible translation. Sounds better this way. This is closer to the Greek. Christ considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped at. So there's equality with God. I'm going to take that. Paul sees Jesus and says, Jesus let go of equality with God. It's right there, but he doesn't hold on to it. So, so that he can live his life through a faith walk. So that he can be one with his Father, but he can be one with us. It's the great paradox. That he can be one with his Father, one with fallen humanity. This is what makes the cross amazing, is that it is God dying, but it's also all of the scum of the earth dying. So that it's, it's the sinner and the saint. I don't know sometimes if we realize what an injustice we do to the finished work when we insist on not allowing ourselves to be called sinners. So we'll say things like, well, don't call yourself a sinner, you're a saint. You used to be a sinner, but now you're a saint. No, you, you are always bringing the sinner into the story, and you are the saint. <laughs> you, you are in that way like Jesus. I know we don't like to call him that because we're afraid we're calling Jesus a sinner, but if he's not a sinner at Calvary, what in the world is Calvary for? So he goes there as the sinner me, and he is also the Father. Uh, he, he has a oneness with the Father. That what, what theologians call that hypostatic union. And that is the union of the man and the God as one. If that's Jesus' definition, that they are one just as we are one, then, then that crosses time. And it crosses culture. It's 3rd century Christians and 8th century Christians and 14th century Christians and 21st century Christians. It's English speaking and French speaking and Japanese speaking. It's, it, it knows no limits, no bounds, and it isn't confined to how you worship, how you praise, what translation of the Bible you know. It's the oneness that makes us a part of the family of God that God could peer into from time and eternity. When He established His church, He wasn't thinking about simply local expressions on the corner. But all of us in a oneness of the faith across time. It's the only way to properly do it. Let me explain what I mean. You go, you go to the cross to die for the sin of the world. You don't go to the cross to die for the sins of worldly people. Let me slow down and say that better. Behold the Lamb of God, take away the sin of the world, singular. That's on purpose. Not behold the Lamb of God takes away the sins of worldly people. That's individual. Worldly people still sin. 
all of us. If being worldly, if that phrase offends you, get over it. You are in this world. You are worldly. You are in this thing redeemed. But the sin, the singular, to take away the sin, is God looking at all of us across time and putting it all into Jesus. So that Jesus doesn't have to die over and over and over and over again. He doesn't have to die as the white Jesus and the black Jesus and the Asian Jesus. And he doesn't have to die speaking English. He doesn't have to die speaking French. He doesn't have to die speaking Russian. He doesn't have to die in the 13th century and then again in the 14th century. All across time, all of it in Christ. And so that then links us. This is why roots and tradition are important in the church. Because roots and tradition sort of reach us back. Um, most of us have come up in church environments of move forward, move forward, grow, 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 grow. Progressive, new, always reaching, reaching, reaching. It's one of the great traits, in my opinion, of the modern church. It's one of the great traits and one of the bad traits, all wrapped into one, our own hypostatic union. We are always forward thinking. We're never just completely satisfied with the status quo. That's helped us adapt. It's helped us change in a world where that's pretty important. It's also one of our weaknesses because we eschew anything yesterday. We even make fun of it. Go into a church, they're doing songs from the late 90s, we snicker. Like, they're not smart enough to know that that ain't cool anymore. And you could go in a church with a stained glass window and they're doing a song from 300 years ago. And we would kind of respect that. Like, wow, they're really reaching into their roots. Bit of a disconnect there on how we view the past versus how we view the present. And that, that good part of us that is able to adapt is also the part of us that eschews any kind of roots. And it's also when we fall into that habit or fall into that pattern... Um, we run a very dangerous risk of being shallow. Because if there are no roots, then it doesn't run very deep. And that shallowness shows itself in persecution. And it shows itself in times of stress. And it shows itself in poverty. And it shows itself in pain. And the shallow church is much more susceptible to leaning towards the beast who has the power because there's not a lot to reach into in our past to hold on to. So we'll reach out for the closest hand. And it's the great warning of the book of Revelation. And so all of that is an intro tonight. <laughs> really, we haven't even touched Ephesians of listening to Jesus try to compare our oneness, I'm in them, you're in me, so that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And we unpacked this in our John series. I'll not try to do it again. We'll leave it there. Let's pick up Ephesians 4. I want to read six verses. I'm going to work them in the wrong order tonight. I'm just going to tell you up front. Six verses, I'm going to break them into two threes. We're going to work the second three first. And we're going to do that because it speaks to the recent journey that we had, I think, a little bit more. And we'll close on these front three. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring 
to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We'll leave those for now. We'll move to four, five, six. There is one body. I want you to notice our word popping up over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is intentionality by Paul. He doesn't have to repeat the word, but he does. He could have just said one, this, 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 but instead he goes one, 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 one to bring you back to the oneness, one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. Note the unnecessary repetition. It reads cleaner to say there's one body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God and father of all. It's clean. Just comma, 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 comma. But instead, he keeps circling you back to the oneness Jesus prayed about. Paul doesn't have access to John 17. John 17 won't be written for a half a generation after Paul's dead. The John that writes John 17 has Jesus proclaiming a oneness out in the future. Paul, following that same sound, that same Holy Spirit, keeps repeating that word, sort of doubling down, tripling down on this oneness. One body, one spirit. Um, about two years ago, out of the blue, and I've even tried to think for the last three weeks about how this happened, and I don't know. I come across a book called The Other Side of the Wall by Munther Isaac. I think I read the title in the footnotes of a book. I think but I don't know for sure. I ordered it. It come from Bethlehem. And it's written by a Palestinian Christian who lives on the other side of the containment wall that has been constructed in the middle of Jerusalem or Israel as a containment to keep Palestinians in their place. I'm not going to stand up here like some political scientist who has answers or knows what he's talking about. So I will leave the politics of that right there. Um, I stood next to that wall last week and went inside that wall and talked to the people on the other side because that book so impacted me that All I thought about or prayed about for a while was those Palestinian Christians living on the other side of the wall who were constantly being told that they were not God's chosen people and facing the persecution and and being the outcasts in a land that only two generations ago had belonged to their grandfather. And... There are keys and locks hanging all over Palestine as a, I was going to say political statement, but it's not right, as a humanitarian statement from displaced Palestinians who hang the keys and the locks of their homesteads that they lost in a prayerful belief that someday they'll be able to slide the key back into the lock of their home. And... This book so moved me because it, it, is the good Samar- it is the Samaritan. It is the other. It is uh, living in a, a world where you are forgotten about, marginalized, or overlooked. And it would not be hard to come up with a laundry list of people 
in America and anywhere else in the world who could put themselves on the other side of the proverbial wall. So as we're preparing to go to Israel, we went with a group from Missouri uh, that I had never met personally, but had followed from afar. And we went because we felt a real green light in our spirit. Like this is the group to go with. I'd heard just enough of their preaching and their teaching and namely their eschatology that I thought I can put up with 10 or 12 days with this group because I don't have to set through, you know, um, you're standing at the epicenter of the place where Jesus is going to come back and the great war for humanity is going to come. And I didn't, I don't have 12 days of that left in me. I, I literally don't have that much. I have just very little of that left. I have, you know, like two and a half minutes left in me, maybe, of it. Um, and I used most of it while I was there. And I'll tell you that story in a second. Um, <laughs> so we get there and we are introduced and we get on the bus and we start the tour. And we're introduced to our tour guide, who is the president of Bethlehem Bible College. And nothing really rang in my head, just something there. I didn't think much more about it. Um, it just sounded familiar. And so we just listened day after day to this person talk who was wildly in love with Jesus and knew his Bible and really loved his country and knew it frontwards and backwards. And as he feels the group out, he softens because you don't know what you're getting. You got all these pilgrims coming from, we have representatives of six nations. There's people, 43 of us in this bus. So as he feels the group over these two weeks, he starts to loosen. He starts to speak his heart. He starts to speak his mind. And we learn that he's a Palestinian Christian with Israeli citizenship, living in Bethlehem, who accepted this tour because he knew the host pastor and decided that he would step away from his job as president of Bethlehem Bible College for 10 days to come and lead our tour. I got to sit down next to him at lunch one day and I asked him if he knew about that book. And he looked at me like I was from Mars. And he said, that's, that's my dean of courses here at the college walked me into the college library and showed me a stack of those books. And I had that moment of saying, hmm, the Lord's showing me something. It was just as great is that about two months ago, we had gotten an email from the host asking for volunteers to switch groups. We didn't care when we went, we just wanted to go. So we volunteered and they never responded. And that should have sent us two weeks earlier, but it sent us then. And had they responded, we would have missed that host. And I think the Holy Spirit caused my email to get lost somewhere in the ether. Um, I tell you all of this because I encountered and experienced Christianity with a deeper root with a deeper root even than I was raised in, than I knew. And, I, and my roots of Christianity go back my entire life. And they go back to like the early 60s when my dad was a teenager and accepted Christ. That's about as deep as they go. 
And that's okay. And I was raised in church cultures where churches weren't very old. Most of them were split off of another church. Most of them were split off of people who thought they could do it better than the church they left. 90% of the churches I grew up preaching in were started by people who just got tired and mad at their old church. And started one because they could sing better, preach better, do better. You know. Most of my Christian heritage is dealing with people who come into the faith to miss hell and came into the church to do better than the trashy one they left. And so that causes our roots to run about 20 years back. This is powerfully impactful being in the land where 2.6 million people come every year to see Jerusalem, where probably a billion people have traversed over 20 centuries to come and take a look at the cross and the empty tomb and you know, walk the Via Dolorosa and all of the stuff that is historic and traditional, but also then to have the guide who had been in prison seven times because he had fought for his Palestinian rights and then was told about Jesus by someone. And he said yes to Jesus and never went back to prison and then went to a conference and met a messianic Jew, a Jew that he had fought and went to prison with or over more than once, that clash. And the man cried and said to him, would you forgive my people for what they've done to your people? And he said, that night I got saved for the second time as the Holy Spirit broke those, that anger and that pain. And I accepted their forgiveness and I asked them to forgive me too. And as I watched this and listened to this and traveled into Palestine and all over Israel, for two weeks. I was so moved by the oneness of our faith that we are here and they are there and we are separated by distance, but we're not really separated by much. We're not really separated by much else, not in the real grand scheme of things. It's the same Jesus. We've just clothed him in different trinkets. We have a varnished Jesus in many ways. And, and, and what I mean is that we have put coats of lacquer on our Jesus. And we do that. We've all done that. And we've done that so that that Jesus is palatable. As you strip all of the varnish away from Jesus and you get down to the man who says, love God and love your neighbor... And the test of loving God becomes loving your neighbor, and the test of loving your neighbor becomes loving your enemy. You get to that Jesus, all the stuff aside, and you realize that you're not that far away from Orthodox, from Catholic, from high church Protestant. You're not that far away. You, you don't worship the same. You don't say the same prayers, but you... Essentially, you're walking in, it's Holy Week, you're walking into the moment where every single child of God on the planet will agree, Jesus came out of the tomb. And you can have your myriad expressions of what that looks like, your songs and your dance and your churches and your stuff. And at the end of the day, Jesus wins. His John 17 prayer worked. That they may be one as you and I are one. Fully human, fully God, not fighting it, accepting 
the contrast between those two things and bringing them both to the cross so that at Calvary, both the sinner and the saint die. So that Jesus dies at Calvary, but God dies at Calvary. That's the great... That's the great core of the gospel, that not only did I die, but God died right there. And he did it simply, simply, and that's a, the wrong word, but it's the one I got. He did it simply, because there's nothing simple about the cross, but let's try to keep it simple. He did it simply because I was going to die. You were going to die. So God doesn't just die as a man. God dies as God. And in reality, all your old concepts of God die there too. Your Moses God dies there. Your Elijah God dies there. And the one that comes out is what we'll celebrate Sunday, the, the gardener. And we love, our, we love our legalistic Jesus. We love our lawyer Jesus. We have a mediator, one man. We love our bookkeeper Jesus. He hath not counted our transgressions against us. That's accountant Jesus. Lawyer Jesus. We love them. And they're, they're, they're worthwhile. But gardener Jesus. Because only the gardener puts his hands in the dirt. The same God who reaches into the soil in Eden and fashions Adam and puts his breath into him. And then becomes him and goes back into the same dirt and resurrects and stands in the garden that morning. The gardener is still gardening. The garden is back. It's just newly restored with the last Adam in it. And uh, his grave clothes are still inside the empty tomb because the gardener's naked. He's not clothed over in human anymore. He's fully God. So that he can bring in all of us fully human people to give us a taste of the fully divine. Um... So that's been my dwelling. Um, my desire to connect to... Uh, not, not, not just to connect to God, that's not right, but to connect to that thing bigger than myself. I don't want the gospel to be about Paul White. It's been about Paul White for a long time. I did that almost... In, I've done that my whole life almost accidentally. And I, because we do it because we've become very individualistic with the gospel. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. If you were the only person on the earth, Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Singular, 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 individual. I agree. But there's 20 centuries of Christians across time that would tell you Jesus died for us. What it really is, is his entrance into the family. Okay, one body. Um, I got some other things I'll say there in a moment, but I'll save them. Think about this. Jesus said that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. I'm leaning back into John 2. Okay. Jesus said that the temple would be destroyed, but that he would rebuild it in three days. His audience took this to be literal. By the way, the worst way to read the Bible is literal interpretation. Okay? Um, they had that problem in Jesus' day. We have that problem now. They took it literal, but of course in John 2.21, he was speaking of his body. Now, I want you to think about this. 
when Jesus clears the money changers' tables in the temple, John moves it. John moves it to John 2. The other Gospels have it in Holy Week. They have it on Monday of Holy Week where Jesus comes in from Bethany. He's, he, the Bible tells you that the night before he surveyed the place, he looked around. And then he went home, went to bed in Bethany. And he comes back the next day. And I don't think he slept that night. I think he looked around. He saw the money changers' tables. He saw the high priest's um, merchandising the house of God and he didn't sleep well and he comes back in the next day and he curses the fig tree on his way in and then he clears the money changers table and he comes back out and the, tree, the fig tree has no figs you know that story but Jesus tells them in the John 2 version of the story he says if you tear this down in three days I will rebuild it and they laugh at him they go this temple's been under construction for 46 years they're talking about King Herod. He's been working on this full time, 24-7 for 46 years, to build the splendor of this temple. You think you're going to tear it down and rebuild it in three days. Jesus just ignores it. He doesn't give him a theological treatise. He just walks away. John, writing a generation later, writes in black in the text. He said this concerning his body. So Jesus is saying, this temple is going to be no more. This is where you have God living now. But you've barred access to God by ripping people off. And no longer will you be allowed to bar access to God to make sure you can't screw this up. This is coming down. And what will be rebuilt in its place is one body. He spoke this concerning his own body. Okay. What body is he talking about? Peter would write this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Coming to Christ as a living stone. Jesus would say of the temple in Matthew 24, not one stone shall be left unturned. The temple stones will be destroyed. And when on August the 10th, AD 70, boom, they came down. The Romans were relentless in the destruction of the, the temple in Jerusalem. They were so good at destroying stone that they melted the stone of the temple. You could hear it exploding as the temple falls and Jesus' prophecy is fulfilled. Peter says... God has built a new temple with different kinds of stones. Living stones rejected by men, chosen by God and precious. You also are living stones being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, we become the living stones of a brand new temple, His body. So entrance into the one body is entrance into Christ. That is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Not simply the individual but the corporate body of Christ, which leads me to one spirit. Every expression of the Christian faith contains the breath of the Holy Spirit. Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Pentecostal, etc. Because there's more. But because they are comprised of humanity, they are all also flawed. Every one of them can be critiqued. That's easy. Critique is... Simple. Find something you don't like, point it out. Why? Because they're human. But because they are all part of one spirit, the refiner's fire of the Holy Spirit is working to destroy. Not what those expressions are, but what those expressions are not. And this is why there is no corner on the market to real Christianity. <laughs> We've really got the true gospel. You got a taste. You got a flavor, you got an expression, but so do they. Yeah, but they do this, 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 and this, and that's blatantly wrong. Maybe you're right. 
You could probably come up with a good half a dozen in your own expression if you weren't so married to it. <laughs> and you could find some really good stuff in there too. And it's, it's not the father looking at his church going, boy, they're getting it right and they're getting it wrong. It's him looking at that union of the human and the divine inside of his body and him going to work with the refiner's fire of the Holy Spirit to purge and to purify each and every one of us to constantly be working on removing. So there are beautiful expressions of Christianity in these things. Some of them are gorgeous expressions of Christianity. I stood in Orthodox churches this week that blew my mind. The expression of art, the solemnity, the splendor, it made strip mall Christianity look like an embarrassment. It is what it is. I mean, it's not, you got, we've got what we got, but it was, it was mind blowing. And it'd be easy to have that and be snobby at someone that doesn't. It'd be really easy. And it's also easy to be snobby towards that. Oh, all the trappings. Um, I was raised evangelical. I transitioned at some point to an evangelical Pentecostal. Um, I love some of the expressions of my Christianity. I, I value them. I can be crit critical of the expressions I've seen. And I think I kind of have that right because I've been a part of those expressions that need critiqued. But there are parts of them that are beautiful that I'm so glad the church has. And I know that it's why every few hundred years there seems to arise a new expression of the faith. Whether it was from the great schism of the 11th century that gave us Orthodox Catholic, and then 450 years later, Protestant. And then 400 years after that, Pentecostal Charismatic. And somewhere in between there, evangelicals kind of eked in there and started great awakenings. And I think the Holy Spirit smiles at every one of them and says, expressions of my body. Look at them. They just keep going. And we ain't seen nothing yet. I personally think we might be the early church. Okay? And I'm saying something that is almost another language in the American church to say. So I'm, I'm going to say it again. I'm, I probably should say it slowly. I think that in 10,000 years, the church will look back and, and say, the early church, and they'll be talking about us. And they'll have about 12 more expressions of Christianity that we haven't thought of yet. And they'll all be beautiful to the Spirit. And they'll all have problems. Really big, fat, terrible problems. Awful problems that if we knew about now, we'd go, ah, it's going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> the churches went downhill. And yet in the middle of those expressions, people will be accepting Christ. Yeah. And there'll be a revelation of glory. And there'll be people on fire and the, the, their souls excited in the year 6812. And they'll be just as one in Christ as we are. So what's all that mean? Um, maybe we just love Jesus and quit worrying about what everybody else is doing wrong. Maybe we just enjoy being part of the body and realize that they're part of the body too. And I don't want to dress like them. And I don't want to have church like them. 
and I don't want to read their text, and I don't want to do their thing. But we both think that the tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive. And Jesus smiles in John 17 and goes, we did it, Father. (laughs) They are one. They're rallying around the one thing. No, they're not going to rally around doctrine. And they're not going to rally around music style. And they're not going to rally around dress. And they're not going to rally around hair. And they're not going to rally around architecture. God knows all of that's true. We can't agree on any of that. We can't even agree on that in the same church, much less with those heathens at the other church. But we got an empty tomb. And that's good enough. That's a good place to start, at least. Maybe it's a good place to end. Ephesians 4 4. One body, one spirit. Don't worry, I'm not going to do all of the ones with that much length. In fact, we're, we're just going to bunch these together. I really wanted to hit one body, one spirit. One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. He's above all, He's through all, He's in you all. Let me show you this. Our earliest Greek translation of Ephesians 4, 6 does not include the word you. Can you go back real quick before we read that? One God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Or in (laughs) y'all. If you want to drag that last part. Paul wouldn't have known what you meant. Of course, he wouldn't have known English, but in you all. One God, one Father. Our earliest Greek doesn't include the word you. It seems to be a word added later. Maybe it indicates that they thought God was in the Ephesians, the believers, but He wasn't in everyone. Take it out. And the verse reads, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. See how that little word you changes your feeling about that verse? Let me, let me read it to you again. Let's put you back in. On One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then it becomes Ephesians. It becomes believers. It becomes select group of people God lives in. Take it out. Read it the way Paul wrote it. One God, one Father. He's above everything. He's through all of it. He's in all. He's not just in all you. He's in all. Otherwise, what's the point of this one business? (laughs) One, 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 one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is corporate. The entire text is corporate. The individual is the next passage. We won't get there tonight. You'll get there next week. You can sneak ahead where it says there's a measure of grace to each one of us. That's Paul's next line. But he's not there yet. Before he deals with the individual, he deals with the corporate. One Lord, one faith, one baptism is a corporate message. But notice that baptism is not included in the individual, it's included in the corporate. That's important because baptism is definitely an individual act. You get baptized, but it's actually our immersion into the corporate body of Christ. So I would say if you struggle with your identity, either your individual identity in Christ or your corporate identity in the body, consider baptism. So I did the pilgrim thing, the pilgrim baptism thing, because I'm there. And there's the Jordan. And they said, if you'd like to be baptized. And I went, I haven't been baptized since I was seven. I gave my heart to Jesus when I was six. I didn't know what I was doing. I just didn't want to go to hell. Truthfully. 
And so in classic Midwest fashion, we wait until it's the absolute coldest day of the year and we take everybody to the river. And so we had to wait. I mean, I got saved when it was nice and warm, but we don't baptize you in the warm. It's going to make it really stick. So I remember going to the, going to the Black River, which flows through the east side of the tiny village of Popper Bluff, Missouri, and nearly breaking the ice in November. And little seven-year-old me, down into the water. Didn't know what I was doing. And I've gotten saved about 86 times since then. I mean, I've, I've, I've re-met Christ over and over and over. There's been more stuff die in me in the last five years than died at six-year-old Paul in that one baptism. So I took my opportunity, and I didn't do it because I felt some closeness to Jesus, like, Jesus got baptized in the Jordan. I need to get baptized in Jordan. But no, no, it was standing at the edge of that water going, I haven't done this as a believer since I was a kid and I didn't know what I was doing. And now I know that I've died in Christ time and time and time again, and I want to step back into this larger church that I'm seeing in this trip than I've ever seen in my life. And I want baptized into her. I want to join that in my spirit. And so I did. And I, I did not expect to have such a powerful reaction to that. And I did have. Um, didn't. Wasn't more saved when I came up wet than I went in dry, but I did sense a reality to this. And I've told people this line right here for years. Struggle with identity, get rebaptized. Never did it myself. So I won't make that mistake again. And what I mean is I won't, I won't make the recommendation for you to do something I don't do. But having stepped into that baptism was a powerful moment. And I wanted to share that with you, and I wanted to share that with you, because I don't know what I was doing when I was seven. I was being baptized because they told you that's what you did when you got saved, but I knew what I was doing at 45. I was, I was stepping into the corporate body of Christ, and I was laying down the version of me that had it figured out. So I go, I don't want to be that guy anymore. I just I want to be a part of the one church. And I want to appreciate the expressions of that faith. And I want to highlight the expressions that are important to me. And I don't want to mock the ones that aren't. And I, and I want to parse the difference. And so um, that's what it meant to me. Let me close here. I'm the prisoner of the Lord. If this, if this talk seems foreign to you, it just shows you how little we talk about being servants of Christ. Um, Paul did it. He goes, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Because he's actually a prisoner. But he goes, whatever I am, I'm to the Lord. So if I'm poor, I'm poor to the Lord. If I'm rich, I'm rich to the Lord. If I'm hungry, I'm hungry to the Lord. If I'm full, I'm full to the Lord. If I'm in chains, I'm in chains for the Lord. And I'm, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to walk as if this stuff matters. So walk as if lowly, gentle, long-suffering, bear with one another in love, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. None of this make you righteous, but do it because you are. Paul goes, I beg you. You're free. I'm a prisoner of Jesus. If I were out there, 
right now. He goes, here's how I'd like to be living. And, and I, I'm begging you to do it as well. And you don't get one brownie point with God for doing any of this stuff. You don't get anointed. You don't get the touch of God. But you are a representative everywhere you go, everything you say and everything you do of a Jesus that you claim to serve and I claim to serve. And, and I, I, I want to walk this stuff out, not because it makes me better, but because I am. And I know you do too. One. It's a lot to say. I'll close with this. I, I told you I had, my, I had about two and a half minutes of left of uh, bad eschatology um, and that they spent it while I was there. Well, it happened inadvertently. I was sitting at Megiddo, which is the site of Armageddon, an allegorical word uh, from, the book of Rev- that's, that's, uh, from the book of Revelation that's referenced to the, the major cross point uh, in the battleground of... Uh, the valley, the mountain of Megiddo. And our, our teacher's teaching, our, our leader there is teaching Armageddon. And honestly, at that moment, I, I knew that was why I chose that group, because it was the way I would have taught it. And overhearing a tour group to my right and their pastor is getting louder and louder and louder. And he's hammering Armageddon. And then here comes the rapture, so you don't have to go through this. And it's just punch, punch, punch. And I could just feel that old guy in me that was there for years that would have preached that same thing, you know. And I uh, went to lunch, and I'm standing at the counter, and I'm overhearing, uh, maybe it was the same guy, and he was given the old dispensational line of hell in a handbasket and how we're at the epicenter right here. And this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is what's wrong with the church not telling you this. And I looked over and there was a young kid, 25 maybe, just staring at him with such a gleam in his eye. And I just couldn't help. I, I, there's such a sickness in my soul of watching another generation get infatuated with death and violence. He was so excited to hear that he didn't have to be a part of this, but that this had to happen over here. And then standing on the other side of that wall, I knew why it had to exist. Because we have created a religious culture that has pitted one side against another side in the great cosmic battle of prophetic timelines. And that the only way to bring Jesus back is to see people die. And so you've got American tourists getting their pictures taken with Israeli soldiers holding assault rifles because they're awfully excited to be on the right side of history. And uh, I do not believe that Jesus is watching and is standing at the edge of the door of heaven and goes... Forget that Sermon on the Mount stuff. I'm going to go back and kill some people. But that's the Jesus I overheard. So when I say to you there's varnish on Jesus, that's the varnish. The Jesus that for 2,000 years is getting frustrated with us and our Sermon on the Mount stuff and finally just decides to go ahead and fight by the devil's rules. He goes, all right. I'll pick up the gun, the missile, the nukes. 
I'm going to come and take care of business. You're going to regret. Jesus rides in on a donkey. Don't flip it and say yes. But when he comes back, he's going to be on a war horse. Because the reality is, is that he will ride in on a white horse. But he will ride in prior to the battle in a vestige dipped in his own blood. And he'll have a sword that comes out of his mouth. And it'll be dipped in his own blood because that's the salvation of every person that encounters that sword. Is the blood of the lamb that rides the horse. Father, thank you. I, I don't know really how to end this word tonight. So I just say thank you for this whole thing. Thank you for this whole experience, these whole few weeks and what impact it's had on us. And, and I pray that what we do with it is shine the spotlight on the Jesus that I am freshly falling in love with every day, all over again. And I hope that I can spend this second half of my life shining the light on an unvarnished Jesus that we may all be one. In Jesus' name, amen.